Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. It's good to good to see you. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. How's everything? Pretty good. This is Alan. Al, tell everybody where you're at, Al. Uh, I'm down in uh, Mexico in uh, the city called Manzanillo, in the state of uh, Colima. Uh, I'm a missionary there. Yeah, I've been there for quite a while. <laughs> Alan has actually finished all the courses, but he's coming back to do this one again. So. I didn't learn the first time. <laughs> hey, Austin. How we doing? Good, good. Do you know Trenton? Oh, yeah. <laughs> now we, we both share the same uh, hairstyles now. Yeah, yeah, that's the new. That must be the fad, huh? <laughs> uh, I think it just grows on you, <laughs> or not, <laughs> or not. It goes, it grows the other way. It's less expensive, it's so much easier to maintain day in and day out. Oh, it's a classic look. How you doing, Drew? Hi, everyone. I'm good. How are y'all? Well, good, good. Glad you could join us, Drew. This is Austin. Austin, tell about tell about what you're up to. Nice to meet you, Drew, and I'm a lead minister up in the Thumb of Michigan. Uh, planted a church almost five years ago, be five years ago in January. So it's been a fun ride so far. Awesome. Nice to meet you. Good to see you, Brian. Welcome back. Thanks. Good to see y'all too. I'm Brian. Now this is my third class to be beginning with Paul, and I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I am a, a minister. Uh, away from church ministry and doing healthcare chaplaincy. Glad to be here. Don't be confused, my my twin brother. I'm not sure. I, I think y'all will be able to tell us apart mainly by our haircuts right now, but uh, he'll be here in the coming weeks. Hello, everybody. I'm Jim. This is my third class. I'm a retired middle school teacher. Great to be here. What did you, you teach? I taught science. Awesome. Good evening. I'm, I'm Matt Von Schuch. I'm a uh, this is my second class. I took the John class earlier in the summer. Looking forward to this one as well. And I really enjoyed the John class. I'm uh, I live in Harrisonburg, Virginia, which is in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. And I'm a lawyer by day and do more interesting things with my kids in the evening. <laughs> you don't read the law with the children. <laughs> That's about like doing theology with the children. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, David Rawls. I've been uh, doing this for, I don't know, about three years with you, Paul, something like that. Yeah, yeah. In fact, David, I think this is your last class for, not to say you can't take any more, <laughs> but you have been clear through the catalog. And so I think this will actually complete the catalog. And so at the end of this class, we'll have a graduation ceremony. I don't know if there really be a ceremony, but <laughs> uh, you'll get the uh, the highest level certificate. Uh, and That's man, great. your life is gonna change. Well, I'm gonna <laughs> see if I I'm gonna see if I can get a raise. <laughs> All that respect, you know, you've been looking for, it's coming your way. I'm look I'm looking forward to it. I was so. just talking to one of my students. And he said, yeah, he said, uh, I thought when I got a PhD, people would look up to me. And unfortunately, it was about the time that they got, had a daughter. And there's nothing more humbling than a daughter. 
for those that are newer, um, these classes actually have got me in more trouble than have really, (laughs) they've been a curse to my life, but it's a welcome curse. How's that? Thanks for advertising for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now we need Anytime. to put that blurb up. <laughs> I'm Matt. I think I know everybody. So, but yeah, I'm a hospice chaplain. I've known Paul since about 2007. And it takes, you know, that entire time to start to understand, I think, you know, some of his, <laughs> his language and means of communication. I'm just kidding. But uh, it does take some time to learn, you know, his his style. But I'm sure glad that I did and um i'm so glad to see everybody in the class and trenton i I love your beard it's very impressive glad to see you guys and i'm looking forward to this class i think it's going to be a lot of fun um just talking with paul i think we're gonna i think we're gonna get into some really cool uh stuff in this class so i'm excited so you don't know everybody hi drew i'm matt (laughs) and drew tell us about yourself so I live in uh, Rockville, Maryland. Um, I have a daughter, so already been humbled many times over by her, who is six. And my wife and I recently had twin boys oh, in wow. February. So you might hear some screeching uh, in the background. By day, I'm a, a postdoc at the University of Maryland working on climate science and agriculture. Other times of the day, I, I'm a huge reader trying to deepen my faith. Uh, but <laughs> anyways, I came across the, the podcast, the Forging Plowshares podcast, because I think I was searching for podcasts that talked about Heidegger. And Paul, I came across your podcast on Heidegger, and it just got me interested in all your other topics. Um, so after listening for a few years, I thought, well, might as well just sign up for a course and, and participate. So good deal. Good deal. You're the first person that's ever said high digger is what drew you in. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah. You know, the first time I listened to your podcast on Heidegger, I got like 10% of it. And then I went and did some reading on my own. And I think I got maybe 40% of it after that. So I'm looking forward to eventually maybe getting above 50%. We'll see. Well, actually, uh, I probably won't bring up Heidegger, but he does enter in there that there, he, he's going to become pertinent on the other end of this class at some point. Uh, awesome. I found out you can uh, repeat, listen to Paul's podcast anytime, and it's the same price. <laughs> yeah. You just yeah. go right through. I've been paying every time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, don't nobody tell Jim. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What I, what I'd like to do is to just lay out. I asked you this question tonight, and this is kind of the key question. This is the foundation to the class. And it's just from the reading and I don't want to repeat the reading you all have read. So, but let's just set it out there the meaning of the gospel and how we sort out authority. This is a foundation that we're going to be pursuing throughout the course. I see from the readings, I've seen that the New Testament is, in a sense, a continuation or a continuum of the Old Testament in that there are typologies, there are parallels in the gospels in general. The idea of a typology is picked up in the gospels. It struck me that Each gospel is an interpretation, which 
to me means like a reframing or seeing a, a dimension that the writer wasn't able to see before. And I appreciated Bear bringing up the idea that the readers or the listeners already had a framework to receive uh, the gospel. The apostles were able to add to that or fill in that framework that was already in place. The people that first heard the gospel had a framework, had a story. They were familiar with the story, and they, they found their identity in that story, the law, the prophets, songs. They found whose identity in the story? As Jews, they, 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 they had an identity in that story. They had a faith identity in the story, in the writings, in the actual formation of the readings. They were people of a book, people that used words to access their identity, allowed the New Testament writers to just continue at least that dynamic. I'd add to Jim by saying a couple things, I guess. One, that the, the event of Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection is a reorienting event. And, and that event in Christ himself becomes our criteria then for looking back through scripture to understand its meaning is him and, and continuing to carry that gospel forward. And so that the presumption and the rule of faith that Bear uses Ignatius to articulate is kind of the, the guiding principle for how we interpret scripture looking back to the Old Testament and how their apostles are preaching the gospel and then how that gospel, um, you know, is turning into scripture in the New Testament as those as the gospels get recorded. And so with Christ as kind of the criteria, who is the truth himself, um, you can look, you look back, you know, through the proclamation to the Old Testament, and you see that it's talking about Christ himself. And so the Old Testament becomes not merely salvation history, telling about things that happened that led up in time temporally to, to Jesus, to Christmas, but it, it, it is all the story of Christ himself. So that you see um, it foretold he was going to be crucified and that he was going to be raised in accordance with the scriptures, as Paul says, um, and he points out in 1 Corinthians. And so the Old Testament then becomes a treasury of images or a, or a written icon of Christ that the apostles are remembering and understanding um, the crucifixion, the resurrection through. They're using those to describe who Christ is, what he's done, and how he's done, and those are and so that interpretive relationship is how the gospel is proclaimed. Um, it is proclaimed, here's Jesus Christ. He was crucified. And he was risen. And that was in accordance with this book of scriptures and how we interpret them. Matt's saying it, and this is the significance there and there, is just saying, well, the, the primary thing is the gospel. Where do we find the gospel? Well, that's the gospel is there in the proclamation of the apostles who are working from the Old Testament scriptures. You know, when they say scripture, they're thinking the Hebrew scriptures. What is the gospel? How would you answer? I mean, I mean, the gospel is Jesus Christ. And they're exegeting Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's what John says at the beginning of John. Here's the exegesis of God, and that's really what scripture is. Uh, to say it most directly, I believe um, your question was describe Bear's point in the opening pages on how to bring together scripture, tradition, and theology. The way I came to see it through the reading was 
if you start looking at those things, scripture and tradition particularly, uh, you may add to that theology or reason, experience. These things make up either a triad or quadrilateral of um, what we base the authority, sort of a balance of powers of those authorities. Well, what I learned in Bear, and it goes hand in hand, Paul, with what you've been voicing recently a lot about the, the rule of faith, is particularly coming down to scripture and tradition, it can look pretty circular, the argument of, yeah, okay, well, they work together, but which one was first? That's the way I came to think of it. Which one were the scriptures, if they were guided and canonized by the tradition, it's a little bit circular to say that after saying that scripture came from the tradition of the church. But I found it uh, helpful to think about the third thing or, you know, the fourth or fifth thing, however you're counting, Mm -hmm. as the gospel itself, which y'all are saying is the message uh, about Jesus, his, uh, the proclamation of, of his uh, presence among us as the word. But most helpful, I think, is recognizing that kind of link between the oral tradition, which existed prior to scriptures and prior to tradition proper. It's a different kind of concept. And I don't know that there's anything in the reading that would link oral tradition to uh, rule of faith to this the favorite word that I that I read in Bear was the hypothesis. And that the gospel is basically a hypothesis. I'll let you maybe introduce that idea to us, Paul, but the better idea to, to say it succinctly is that the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Son of God. Bear uses that beginning and the end of the first chapter to say this gives rise to all our, our theology. It gives rise to all our uh, self-understanding. It gives rise to all our, the authority that we're talking about, scripture and tradition, are built on this confession, which was, you know, there's a lot of room for conversation about what that means and what the implications are. So scripture was the apostolic witness. Uh, the New Testament scripture is the apostolic articulation and witness of what that, what that confession meant. Uh, to them, first of all. And there's a rule in there of this guides you. This is like the center of our life now. It interprets us. So it was very fruitful um, idea and concept, and I think wonderful for beginning our, our course on interpreting Scripture. Because it, it implied, to go back, it said that before the New Testament was written, the Old Testament was what they had in terms of that was scriptures, the law, the prophets, and uh, the writings, those became something that were seen through the lens of this confession. So looking back at the Old Testament, Paul and the other apostles, John, were looking at the Bible through the lens of Christ or through the lens of the gospel. And so there you get the phrase, according to the scriptures. It may be tempting to look at those that phrase as meaning that the Old Testament prophesied the events and they happened according to that, that way, those events happened and these events happened and that sort of verifies it. But really according to is more likely to be giving voice to the fact that scriptures in the Old Testament can be read in this way now, especially now and only now. And and this is how we read them. This is where the authority is. If I ask you, do you find Christ in the Old Testament? 
Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. That's where Jesus, you know, he exegetes the Old Testament to show that he's the center of it. Paul exegetes the Scripture. That's what holds the whole thing together. I I don't mean to be pedantic here. Uh, I'm actually asking a question. But if I ask you, when we say Jesus, when we say Christ, what does that mean in the terms that Bear is laying out there? He means Jesus Christ, the man who was crucified and who was raised, who we know uh, because the Scripture spoke of him. That's all we got, right? So when we're talking Christ, we're talking Jesus. It's the the Christ that we encounter in Scripture. I think that's important. It's not a pre-existent Christ. You know, we're going to get lost a little bit in logos theology and various. You know, the parts of this are going to start to fall apart. Uh, even discussion of the Trinity. I notice Bear points out. Oh, very quickly, they're going to start talking about the Trinity apart from the Incarnation. And his point is, oh, this only holds together as long as we're talking about the incarnate Christ. This is what we mean by gospel. This is what we mean by rule of faith. So if I'm, you said I was I was okay, what I wrote? <laughs> You're okay, David. <laughs> okay, good. I feel like the, the point was is that you, you start with Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and it, he becomes a central focus of, of interpreting. Um, what caught my attention, and maybe even what this uh, discussion you had with a, uh, the Emmanuel professor, uh, I wonder if that is a little bit of what Bear was talking about, where um, he kind of opens up and takes a shot at the Reformation approach to Scripture. And I wonder if um, we're more entrenched into that Reformation approach, and if I guess the Reformation approach has a high view of Jesus, but they're not necessarily interpreting, I don't know, recapitulating or reinterpreting uh, Scripture through uh, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And because they'll take a high view of Scripture, but I think, though, the, the Reformation view that Bear is, is shooting at, the, the problem with it is, is that it doesn't, I, I don't think it doesn't understand the flow of the story of where the whole Bible's heading. And then it chops it up where you have Project A and Project B, whereas I would think that Bear is saying, no, there was always one project, and the key is Jesus as he unveils uh, everything, gives us the eyes to see both the old and new. So that's all I'd have to add, and you can uh, correct anything I, I said wrong. Oh, no, that's it, that, that we're going to lose this rule of faith. Bear may have seemed a little strange to you because I think he's actually doing something that most Protestants don't do. But I, I, I really think that we're going to lose the rule of faith very early in church history. And, you know, understand, people are still going to be talking about the rule of faith all the way through, but they've changed up the meaning, I think. And, I, you know, obviously with Luther, with Sola Scriptura, that uh, we're, we're, we're doing something different. This idea that Bear is talking about, you know, the gospel— the rule of faith, the analogia fide is actually a phrase from Paul. Uh, I think we can talk about a, the hypothesis, or we can just talk about it the way the Hebrews does, that this is the faith that you know we become certain of. This is just what postmodernism has rediscovered, and that is you don't really know things apart from 
a meta-narrative, a worldview, a hypothesis. We know things in and through a theory, in and through a, a hypothesis. Now, the hypothesis, the, the only thing, Brian, that I, I, was not, I was a little unsure, it's not simply the confession of faith, but actually, you know, Irenaeus is going to lay this out. And, and of course, Origen is going to lay it out in even more detail on first principles. But even Irenaeus, you know, he's going through, and every time they're talking about the rule of faith, they're talking about the Trinity, yeah. the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit so that we encounter the fullness of God in Jesus, in Christ, and that we know, you know, this is a first order, there's no imminent economic trinity, which will develop, and I think that, that for good reason, because they're, not, they're simply not thinking of God being removed from them in that sense. As a, as a uh, former Roman Catholic and um, now completely schooled in Protestant thinking, I thought that it was interesting, and I'd, I'd like to hear the tie more. I, I think I understood there um, the tie of tradition, right? Uh, good Protestants, hopefully we reject tradition, uh, and, and yet they developed. If, if you remove tradition, you, you may remove, what, Jesus from, from that? Uh, yeah, yeah, and of course, what bear means by tradition is not what Roman Catholics mean. What, right, what right. bear means is the, the tradition handed down from the apostles, which is the scripture. This tradition is not over and against scripture. It's in and through scripture. The idea of, you know, the chicken and the egg here, in other words, we really can't work out because it's the preaching, it's the kerygma of the apostles. It's the deposit of faith that is received, you know, the apostles they're the deposit. And I noticed that Bear, I, I found this, that even as an Eastern Orthodox theologian, he's not doing anything that I think we could all agree with, that he's not talking about apostolic succession. He's just saying, oh, that the preaching of the apostles or the tradition, and understand this is all going to get defined in and through the heretics. Or actually, the heretics do us a big service because they're going to force you know, because what the Gnostic, you know, this is Irenaeus' complaint is, oh, they just, they they have their tradition, but they pit their tradition against Scripture. Irenaeus saying you can't do that, that the tradition and the Scripture are the same thing. Or you have the, the, the Marcionites or others, you know, in other words, they're going to talk about a hypothesis. They're also going to talk about something like a rule of faith, but their rule of faith is going to be their own individual understanding. Bear works this, I think he works it out in a very balanced way. I think he's just reading the early church fathers, but it's it's there in the, the in the New Testament, you know, when they're talking about scripture. What scripture? Well, the scriptures that are unveiled through Christ, that are that is the this unveiling that occurs, you know, this is the way Paul talks that the Jews have their hearts are veiled, and that the, now the scriptures are unveiled, and now that they're unveiled, you can find Christ there. The, and Paul finds the whole gospel story. Is it really there? In, in, well, it's in a sense, that's the hypothesis with which he's reading. I think that's the, the key. You said the Trinity, and I do remember him t talking about through Irenaeus, um, and a question about the rule of faith that 
you know, may not have a very easy answer. But if I'm looking at if what I walked away from the reading was saying that it's the identity of Christ. And of course, the next thought is, okay, well, how, how are this man and Yahweh the same? And then throw in the Holy Spirit. You got the conversation about the Trinity. Well, eventually that's what becomes the creeds too. They're Trinitarian in their structure. And so at some point, just to ask the question, what is the rule of faith in relation to what later has became creeds? And I know we're going to get to that, but in terms of whatever you're about to add to it, I just, I wanted to maybe ask that question because how would we sum it up in response to that, the reality that, you know, some people today may define the rule of faith as, you know, a much more extensive creed and a a very specific interpretation of the creed. So, you know, it once again gets a little bit. um, Right, right. You know, the rule of faith is not a creed. And I think uh, Bear says that, and I think that's clear. And what I'm about to say will make this clear. This is not anything against the creeds, but the creeds are not the rule of faith, and the rule of faith are not creeds. The creeds are actually, a lot of them are written kind of in you know, response to heretics. Say, okay, here's what we got to believe in here. You can't believe this. But what we're doing with the rule of faith is, I, I think we're going to really get this full-blown in origin, but even before origin in you know, Irenaeus, he's already talking about, well, the rule of faith, and then he goes through and talks about, you got to believe God is creator. You've got to believe, you know, Jesus as the Son, and, you know, he goes through and talks about the revelation of Christ, and he goes talks talks about salvation, saved from death. Uh, he's going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, and then he's going to talk about eschatology. He's got two paragraphs, you know, and, and of course, by the time we get to Origin, we've got two books, and the reason we got two books is because Origin is having to change up people's world. You know, the, the heretics are coming into the church. The, I mean, when we say heretics, they're just the Christians. There's the Marcionite Christians. There's the ones that uh, Origen will refer to as the simple ones. They live in the wrong world to understand the gospel. And so when we talk about the rule of faith, part of this is to change that world up, that the implication of the incarnation, the implication of the gospel is they have to change up their metaphysics. They have to change up their understanding of God. They have to change up their understanding of what a human being is. Actually, the, you know, this is the interplay with Greek philosophical thought. Nobody's Greek. They're using a lot of Greek thought. But a lot of it is to say, well, this is what the Greeks say, and of course that's inadequate. And here's the way this is going to, to be shifted. So when we're talking about rule of faith, it is this hypothesis, and, and there is the ground of the hypothesis from which everything will unfold. What I'm about to say, I think Brian will answer your que- the question further as to the difference between this and a creed. And by the way, by the time we get to the Nicene Creed, I don't want to uh, a spoil alert, I'm afraid that already we have a shift in people's perception of the rule of faith, okay? But, you know, this is a phrase, the rule of faith or the analogy of faith, or we can just say the gospel. When we say gospel, that that doesn't sound exactly right, but this is what, you know, once you read Barry, you understand, oh, this is what the early church fathers meant by gospel. 
They really meant this hypothesis through which you're reading scripture. First of all, the thing that, that is there that it's just saturated in is it's always linked to peace. The, the rule of faith, the, the gospel, and, and will especially, it's just there in all of the early church fathers, and I'll, I'm about to demonstrate that, but especially in someone, Origen dispels this out. And of course, we're going to lose, we're going to lose a lot of things along the way. The other thing, it's, it's linked to apprehending rightly. That is, Paul is going to use this language. It's apprehending scripture rightly, certainly. It's apprehending all things rightly, though, through Christ. In other words, this becomes a means of making critical judgments. And that's, that doesn't sound exactly right. That is, we put on the mind of Christ. I think the rule of faith is something we put on when we put on the mind of Christ. The, I thought of the Freudian word. I think Matt asked, asked me a question, and I don't know why I go to Freud, but you know he talks about that we cathect the superego image. Well, I think this is a good cathecting, but we cathect the gospel. We cathect the rule of faith. It's taken up as part of our character, as part of our apprehension of the world. That That's Yiddish? my premise. Is that Yiddish? Cathect? No. <laughs> what is that? I assume it's good, good English. I don't know. <laughs> uh, just to take something into yourself. I'm interested, though. How do you spell it? C-A-T-H-E-C-T -E is the way that I spell it. Whether anybody else spells it that way. I... Yeah, that's not Yiddish. Okay. Cathect. <laughs> so let me give you, I'm just going to give you a series of scriptures and uh, that I, I'm building this, I'm supporting my claim here. Galatians 3.25, but now that faith has come, we no longer, we are no longer under a tutor. Part of the image of the rule of faith is that this displaces our relationship, our former relationship to the law. And that's how the rule of faith is different than a creed, too. Because the law, like a creed, you know, the, the law especially, though, stood outside of us. It was coercive. It was a tutor. Uh, and the rule of faith, I think, is something, you know, the analogy of faith is something that we take up. It becomes part of us. Uh, it's actually Romans 12, 6, where the analogia fide, analogia pisteos, actually, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. And there is the phrase, analogia tes pisteos. In accordance with faith, by the rule, the analogy, the, you know, my, I said rule of faith. My wife didn't like that phrase. She said, ah, that sounds, you know, okay, well, let's use analogy or let's, you know, that's actually a good biblical word. So if your gift is prophesying and prophecy here, you know, just preaching, teaching, uh, you do it in accordance. You, the guide, the rule, uh, the analogy of faith is what guides you. The prophet speaks by the analogy of faith. 1 Corinthians 2, 12, you may think, oh, this doesn't fit, but I actually think it's the same thing. 2, 12 to 16, we receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. As we come into the church fathers, but we're just continuing the, the New Testament, 
And that is that we're going to talk about the spirit of the world and the, you know, a, a spirit of violence, a spirit of death, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also so speak, not in words taught by human wisdom. And I think uh, divine wisdom is, is another way of talking about the rule of faith, that we take this wisdom up into ourselves. It is taught by the Spirit combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. For who has known the mind of the Lord that will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, but he who is spiritual appraises all things. That he says, we are appraised by no one, but we appraise all things. Appraise, judge, critique, under, you know. That is, I think Paul is describing that this rule of faith is something that functions in our lives as a means of apprehending, critiquing, understanding. Another word that I think we can use here is the word measure. I mean, that's literally what we're talking about, right? Rule, measurement, a means of measure. Until we, this is Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. There's the means by which we measure all things. There is this canon. You know, it's not just a rule that, floats free outside of us, but it's a thing that we begin to apprehend all things through, that we then taking up this gospel. We judge by the measure of faith. Now, the word measure will be used in, in several ways in the New Testament, but, but it's connected to sound judgment. It's a key part of the measure of peace that's given to us by Christ. It's no longer the measure of the law. And I think that's key. Not that there was anything wrong with the law, but what we would do with the law, as you've heard me say so often, is that we would pervert it. That is, we have a perverted uh, orientation to the law, a perverted rule of faith, if you will. And by this measure, by this law of peace in Christ, the measure of peace is instituted. That's Ephesians, you know. And so th that was my first point. This thing is the gospel. This is what we're to do with the gospel, is take it up into ourselves. The second point is this is always connected to peace. It's just saturated in nonviolence. That peace is its goal, and peace is its guiding principle. And, you know, this at some level, this should be obvious to us, that the nonviolent love of Christ that is definitive of Christ and the apostles is the hypothesis by which we're working. In other words, if this hypothesis is working correctly, it has an ethical impact. It has an impact on our, our lives in that we can do the love and peace of Christ. I really think that's what Origen is going into this long, detailed depiction of what is required you know, uh, in a basic understanding. But of course, he ends it with his reading the Bible. It's really a book about reading the Bible. But the reason Origen wants people to read the Bible 
is they're about to kill, you know, they kill seven of his disciples. His uh, te- He's teaching the catechumens, and he's 18 years old, and he knows they're going to, they're, uh, they're arresting them and killing them. He's preparing them to be martyrs, to be witnesses. But here, let me read one more scripture. This is Ephesians 2, 14 to 18. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What did the law do? It was a rule that was hostile, and it promoted hostility and violence. And he did this by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he makes the two men into, new, into one new man. Jew-Gentile hostility is undone. That hostility was aggravated. It was constituted by the law. But that's just the Jew-Gentile case is an archetype of the human predicament, the human problem. Thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one, in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Christ has put to death hostility, enmity, uh, the necessity of violence. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Oh, you think that should be part of our rule of faith? In other words, the peace of Christ. Unfortunately, that is going to be the thing that is, gets left out very early on. And I noticed Bear, I, I haven't read everything that Bear's written, but I noticed it's missing in, in his description. It's certainly not missing in the church fathers, but of course, by the time we get to Augustine, it's largely absent. And the Ephesians passage, let me just close with Ephesians 3.10. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. What, what are we doing in the witness, in presenting, you know, oh, it's a witness to the powers. And, of course, this is Paul is probably thinking very similar to Origen. He's going to be killed. But Christ is killed. And this is a demonstration, this form of death, this form of radical submissions, radical subordination, you know, John Howard Yoder's point, is a, a way of undoing you know, the violence. Uh, it is a way of challenging the violence. I'm glad you, you said that because I felt like this whole discussion, uh, the way that Bear was presenting it, uh, was so focused on, on proper beliefs. And there was very little talk about ethics in here at all. And in, in one part, um, it, I can't find it exactly, but it it says something about sort of distilling the life of Christ down to the death, the burial and the resurrection. And from my perspective, that just, it it diminishes all the ethical teaching that came before that, you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount, which, you know, I find one of the most moving parts of Christ's life. So I'm glad you said that. That's something I was in there. Excellent. That's that's great, Drew. And that's exactly what, you know, the church fathers, they're all going to go to the Sermon on the Mount and talk about Matthew and, you know, turning the other cheek. 
in describing this, they're going to refer, I'm about, I'll, I'll go to it here. And that, that's what's missing in the creeds. Not, um, it's, you know, well, that's maybe not what the creeds are for, but it's certainly what the gospel is for. And it's certainly what the rule of faith is for is that we are, it is an ethic. The rule of faith is an ethic. And it, yeah, I didn't, I don't find that, you know, that's not the way that it's going to be talked about, but except it's certainly talked about that way by the church fathers. So if we had to say what's happening in Christ, you know, actually we, we could reduce it all down to two hermeneutic strategies, uh, two rules which are coming into conflict in the life of Christ, the human measure and the, you know, which we could say is the law of sin and death, the law. It's inherent an inherently violent measure that kills Christ. And then the measure of Christ that is inherently peaceful. And it's in the life of Christ that I think we're seeing two rules, two hypotheses being stood up against one another. And what we see is that by the measure of the rule of man, Christ dies. You know, this is uh, deicide is the way Maximus, the confessor, is going to put it. And he's actually referring to the Greeks. He's a, he's a great fan of Greek philosophy, but he's saying the end point of the best of human thought is deicide. And so they're, they're engaging, they're going to engage Greek philosophical thought in the East and the West. But of course, in the East, I would claim they're not captured by that thought in the way that they are in the West, which is kind of ironic. And I, I agree with Maximus, but I think that's just the gospel. The, the best of human thought results in deicide. The force that killed Christ is what the martyrs face. It's what they die and, you know, they're, they're dying, and in the manner of their death, they're defeating it. That is the, the peace of Christ. I, the, the story, I did a blog, I, you know, one of uh, Origen's uh, students, she was uh, tortured. They dripped hot pitch on her body, and she died in such a way that the officer in charge of her death converted to Christianity and was then martyred. <laughs> That's what's happening. That's why they say the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, because this is the witness, the manner of death. Uh, and I don't think, you know, I don't think it's just that we have to be martyred, but we should practice an inward martyrdom. That's the way that Origen talks about it. The, yeah, no, this is what this whole thing is about, is the capacity to die such, you know, this is the ba baptism is, is dying and being raised with Christ. I, I totally agree with you, Drew, uh, as far as, and I know when I'm thinking the death, burial, and resurrection, I'm thinking uh, his life as well. Uh, but it would, would it be safe to say if we hadn't veered away from uh, his teachings on uh, peace, we probably would have never come up with penal substitution. Penal substitution then becomes a way to explain why we're so violent, because God's violent. You know, because, you know, God, God has to kill to suffice. Is that fair or am I just fishing? Yeah, no, I think that's, you, you understand that by the time we get to Augustine, that uh, under a Constantinian shift, that the church is going to become involved in violence, that in the first 
you know, we don't need to say all this again. You all already know it. But the first 300 years of the church, pacifism is just the case. Nonviolence is the case. There's no controversy. That's just understood. And it's also understood when we get to Constantine, that's what's going to be lost. What I'm claiming is, yeah, and that's reflected in the very hypothesis of Christianity that we get in the Augustinian Constantinian ship. I don't know how it could be otherwise. In other words, we're, we, the, comp, the, the compromise under Constantine, it's going to compromise a lot of things, but I think a, an easy way to say that is, yeah, and what gets compromised is this topic. They're going to begin to read Scripture di differently. And I think part of what we're going to do in the class is trace that, uh, try to put our finger on that. But I think tonight we're putting our finger really directly on, okay, what did the early church believe? This is easy because it's just there everywhere. Let me give you, I'll just go through a series of examples. They're, in these examples, they're tying together the rule of faith with peace and nonviolence. Let's start with the Didache that provides instructions, you know, for, and it, it contrasts the way of life and the way of death. You, you know, it's really, okay, here's these two rules. The way of life is characterized by loving God, loving one's neighbor, loving one's enemies, by abstaining from violence. And then the text is Matthew 5, 39. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. You know, you know Matthew 539. You know, if anyone wants your shirt, give him your cloak. If anyone asks to go a mile, go with him two miles. You shall you've heard you shall love your neighbor. I say you shall uh, love your enemies, not hate your enemies. V this passage gets quoted several times and in, in the Didache. So uh, Justin Martyr does a similar thing. Uh, in his first apology. He's writing to Emperor Antonius Pius, and he discusses the merits of Christian doctrine, and he provides the uh, describing the identity of, uh, you know, who are Christians. He says, we who hated and slaughtered one another, we who would not welcome to our home people of a different race because of their customs, now since the coming of Christ, we live and eat with them, and pray for enemies, and then he quotes the same passage, Matthew 5, 39 to 44. For proof of these claims, he points his readers to the examples of Christians who used to be on your side, he says, but who have turned from the way of violence and tyranny, who were overcome by observing their neighbor's steadfast way of life. That is, why are people becoming Christians? Because they see peace and you know not they're resisting tyranny and these proofs he put forward their people and i think that's part of the rule of faith you know part of the gospel that origin talks about this it's not necessarily written on paper with ink but he's saying it's written in people's hearts so did you the last phrase here these proofs put forward are people christians whose lives are governed by a rule of enemy love. The, the big one, of course, is Irenaeus. Irenaeus uh, spells out the rule of faith in many places. And this is uh, against heresies 228. 
Since then, we possess the rule of truth itself and the manifest testimony about God. We ought not cast out the solid and true knowledge about God by running from one solution to another. No, it is proper to direct the solution of difficulties toward that standard, the rule, and to discipline ourselves by investigating the mystery and economy of the existent God. Why? To grow in love of him who has done and does for so much for our sakes. Again, Drew, there's the ethic, the ethic of love. The ethic, you know, is inherent to this. So the rule is not an objective rule out there, but the means to grow in love and peace. I don't mean to run this in the ground, but I think it's important to make the point because it's going to be missing in so much of the literature. This is from Tertullian. You know, Tertullian was uh, once born in 160. He explains that Christians are persecuted unjustly because they love their enemies and are forbidden to retaliate. And he's addressing the emperor the, uh, under charges of atheism and treason. He asked, they banded together as we are, ever so ready to sacrifice our lives. What single case of revenge for inj injury are you able to point to? He uses a bit of hyperbole. He says, you know, actually, uh, there's enough of us that we could form quite an army, we Christians. And in fact, in your army, there are many Christians. And of course, that was the case that is not over and against the rule that if, you know, if you convert, you need to, you can't participate in violence. So we have the instances of people actually being martyred because they're soldiers who refuse violence. He says, for what war would we not have been fit and ready, even though unequally matched in military strength? We who are so ready to be slain, were it not that according to our rule of life. So Jesus Christ has made clear one should fulfill the law with patience, following his example in teaching, in saying that the law has found more than it has lost. And this, then uh, Tertullian suggests that the law has been stripped of its power to of retributive justice through patience, it's been afforded a higher meaning, and, and what he's talking about is nonviolence. Uh, Ignatius, and actually I'm going backward here a little bit, uh, Ignatius is actually earlier than any of these guys. Uh, die, Ignatius dies in 108. I didn't find the rule of faith necessarily, but uh, the, the nonviolence is just there everywhere. And this is in, in his letter to Polycarp. And Ignatius, as you know, is on his way to martyrdom. He's about to be fed to the lions. And he encourages Polycarp. He says, make every effort to satisfy the commander under whom you serve and from whom you will draw your pay. For a, and he, you know, he's referencing Ephesians. For a shield, take your baptism. For a helmet, your faith. For a spear, your love. And for body armor, your patient endurance and lay up a store of good works as a soldier deposits his saving so that one day you may draw the credits that will be due to you. So he's, he's you know, doing what Paul does, but, but takes it even further. That is, each piece of military equipment is substituted for something 
that cannot be used for violence. It's all used for peaceful means. Uh, he's not simply quoting Ephesians, but he's referring to it. But he's repurposing the message, telling Polycarp to gird himself for spiritual battle. And, you know, faith, love, and, endure, and, and this will give you the endurance to fight under the command of Christ. I think they're all there that many of the early fathers are facing martyrdom. They're preparing for martyrdom. And of course, origin is the biggie here. Before I launch into origin, though, let me just pause a minute. Galatians 3.25, I know that's way back where you started, but what I can't get out of my head there is is that shift from external authority of the law to internal authority, which is the rule of faith. And how it's it's very analogous and and parallel at least to life in the spirit versus life in the law. But taking it up into yourself and having this rule, it, it's I really like how you sum it up or or have another yet another parallel in mind of Christ because uh, of the the cathartic aspect of it that we see modeled not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but in Philippians 2, and reflecting on Christ's pattern of emptying himself and humili- humiliation and uh, to, the, to the point of death. That model, that act, um, that example is himself, what we take up into ourself in, in nonviolence, in God's way, which is totally different from the measure of of the law measure of the world. And uh, just like, you know, we talked before about Jesus confronting the powers at his, uh, the trial before Pilate, that's ringing in my ears too. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's lots that we could probably refer to, but, but mainly that idea of, of the shift to, for, to an internal authority. So if you take the word rule, it helps to remember that it's not an external rule. It's a rule of the heart written on the heart. Yeah, maybe rule is not a good word. I don't know. Maybe my wife's right. I couldn't agree with you more, Paul. But at times I feel like I'm when I, when I hear these teachings about peace, having the nature of peace like enfolded in our minds, sometimes I feel like, a, like watching a professional soccer game. I mean, the, the martyrs and so on. If all the churches I've been participating in were able to hear me tonight, I would say this is a skill set that needs to be, in my in my opinion, taught. Mm. You know, break it down into small steps, break it down into, I don't know, just yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I agree, but it's like out there from our last two classes, I've found myself, not that I'm, you know, violent, but I've, at times I've felt a reaction within that I have to decide, are you going to follow this your first impulse to say something or just to hang on to a feeling or you're going to, how do you let it go? What is the process that you actually step into to incorporate this? That's my question. That's good, good. Matt. So I've been, I've been sitting here thinking as you're talking, I'm just kind of working this out as you're going through uh, and you and I have talked about some of this stuff. So well done, you know, but I, I think that, you know, you've been describing something that before was a, an external law, but that you're now talking about a cathectic, you know, the, the mind of Christ. I, and I was just thinking about all this reminded me of, you know, after Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, 
you know? So I think because what you're, what you're ultimately describing is the spirit is a spirit that, you know, that we take up or, or perhaps that takes us up in our baptism, you know? Uh, in other words, a new way you're talking about of apprehending reality. You're talking about a spirit of peace. You're talking about the mind of Christ. You're talking about a way of reading the culture around uh, the early Christians, the way of reading the scriptures, and even of tradition, you know? And so I was thinking about earlier about how Origen talks about how the scriptures are an incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is a powerful way of talking about, and we're going to get into that in this class, you know, that he, he makes the, the word of God itself a, a sacramental incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so I was thinking about how tradition then, you know, and, 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 I, and I don't want to, I'm up for correction here, but I was thinking about how, you know, it could be the, the tradition uh, you know, maybe it's like the, the right hand and left hand of God, as it were. You know, you have the you have the scriptures, you have the word of God, you have Christ, and you have tradition, the Holy Spirit. To someone was describing earlier that there's maybe sort of a, a give and take there. All that to say that could it be that what was happening before the, the rule of faith in the early church is that there was some sort of external guiding law, call it, but that after Pentecost, you know, there's the, the third person of the Holy Trinity who comes and indwells God's people. And that forms a collective mind, a people of peace, uh, a tradition, a church, who I do think come together with a word. You know, we were t- John Bear also goes through and he says, well, for people like Ignatius, you know, there's the Kirigma, you know, the proclamation that comes before the New Testament scriptures. You know, so there's already a community, a community of people, a, a, a spirit among the people that people like Ignatius are going to speak prophetically. He says, well, even if we didn't have the letters of Paul, right? I, I don't, is it him? Or maybe it's Irenaeus who comes after him who says something like that, that like, you know, follow the bishops, right? Or whatever. So in other words, there, there really is this spirit of the early church. What you're saying is, is a spirit of peace uh, and a, a spirit of love, a sacrificial love that was embodied you know everyone from mary the theotokos on through you know saint paul through the rest of the uh, the disciples who laid down their lives and on into the early martyrs that you've been describing justin martyr origin students origin himself will be put on the the torture rack and for all intents and purposes die at least as a confessor of the church you know and it's very uh, i must say it makes me very happy to see how much of an admirer of origin you've become it's very very makes me very it's happy. all your fault matt <laughs> uh, you know he's he's such a wonderful oh he's wonderful and that's that you start reading these guys they're such amazing personalities and i and not to say that they're perfect but what you've just done is predicted where we're going well can i just say one more thing mm-hmm. um i haven't really talked to you about the trajectory of the class or anything like that but when it comes to the reading of the scripture as you've been leading through De Lubach and other people, right? That, in other words, you can do exactly what you've been describing, only apply it to the scriptures, right? You can do a sort of uh, a spiritual reading, a peaceful reading of the scriptures, or you can do uh, what we usually do uh, when we forget about the tradition. I would say to someone earlier, it's like, well, there is no, and this is maybe me as coming, and, and John Bear too, as Orthodox Christians, but that, you know, there, there is no scriptures without the tradition. You have to have the tradition, at least in, in some way. So whether it's the uh, the apostles or the bishops or the whoever's, you know. Well, he's bear. Yeah, you need to be careful, though, in assigning bear 
too much weight. Bear is he's stating this very carefully. Mm. The gospel is the tradition, is scripture, is Jesus, is you know, in other words, these things are all wrapped up in a package. Right. No, so no, you, no, I didn't I didn't mean to overstate it. I was just saying that I do think though that we can have a violent orientation to the tradition that we would just take to the scriptures itself and say, well, this is what happened in the Reformation. They just said, well, the tradition, they got it wrong uh, and that we need to restart or we need to reform or we need to redo or, or whatever. We can get rid of, for them, for all intents and purposes, all the stuff we well, don't like. Well, the part, part of the problem, this class tonight may be uh, foundational because we're going to lose, I think we lose the rule of faith. Not everybody's going to still be talking about it, and they imagine they're talking about the same thing. But of course, what we've described tonight, I think, is the context in which this is embodied. I, I really like the way that Bear talks about it, but Drew, your point is key, and that is, yeah, but something got left out. And I think that's what we're describing now. This is an ethic. This is a life. This is peace. This is the love of Christ. That's all tied up in the gospel. We all know that, I think, and that's tied up in the rule of faith. So to talk about these things simply propositionally, that's part of the problem with creeds. Not, not that there's an inherent problem with creeds, but there is a problem if you imagine the creeds do the work of the rule of faith. They well, don't think, do that work. I think that John Bear obviously carefully selected his title and he said he uses the way you know so he's talking about the way and then he's talking about two nicaea so two really important things and he does he does make that distinction between creeds and the rule of faith he's he's aware enough right that there is a difference you know somebody like j denny weaver is very anti-creedal of course i come from a you know archer i it's not that the creeds are inherently a problem but I think that they can become a problem. And I, I think Bear would agree with this because I think that the creeds will begin to function in place of the rule of faith, not that they ever should have or were meant to. And this is what we're going to talk about, that the letter will begin to function in That's place. That's right. That's right. And I probably wore you guys out tonight already. So I don't, I don't need to do origin tonight, but origin actually bodies what forth what I've said, even in a more full fashion than anything I've said up to now. I mean, you just know a little bit about origin. You know he's nonviolent. You know his rule of faith is according to peace. So he's going to read that peace throughout Scripture. That is the first principle. And the church will anathematize him in the sixth century. And that, that's a sign that he's doing something right. Wow. <laughs> you know when they tear out your tongue, they cut off your hands, they put you on the rack, and it's your Christian brothers doing it. You've done a good thing. Surely that can't be right. <laughs> it might be kind of left field because I, I haven't read the book, but I know that in, on this uh, forum, um, y'all have discussed David Bentley Hart's book on tradition. And what I've heard, uh, not having read it, y'all say about it is that Tradition almost amounts to nothing. Like it's not the thing that people today want to call, want to say it is. So, did he talk anything in that conversation about the rule of faith? Because I feel like I'm on a, a line that says that the rule of faith is the most 
bare and basic thing. And, you know, I even wanted to go back to the, the confession. And I don't want to leave out the Trinity. I think the Trinity is contained in that. But just wondering where the, um, the essence is in its most salient form and, and small, smallest thing. Because I think of the charisma, the word of the cross, the, the one, one gift of God to the world in the beginning. We, we, like we talked about in the class of John is this is retelling the creation story. It's just everything is summed up in this one event, this one person. So if he is a rule of faith, just by naming him and then naming him as the son of God and then recognizing that it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I brought up David Bentley Hart, so I'll just stop and see if you, if you had any. Um... The point is that we've said, here is our hypothesis. You understand that a hypothesis is just the beginning point. And, and so when we're, we're talking about the rule of faith, Origen is going to write two volumes. To my mind, you know, it's on first principles. It might as well be on the rule of faith. He's saying, here's what you got to believe. In other words, yes, we believe in Christ. In fact, the people he's writing to would believe in Christ. They're confessing Christ. They're already in the church. But his problem is they're simple-minded. And these simple-minded ones are literalists. And so they believe that God has hands and eyes, you know, that he's corporeal. But that's just the beginning of their problem. They live in a universe that, that, as Paul describes it, they cannot understand those things that are spiritually discerned. And so I think the hypothesis is one that we're unfolding. Yes, it is Christ. And, you know, even Drew, I think your point that in some way the Nicene Creed is even inadequate in that we, you know, crucified under Pontius Pilate. Oh, just a minute. We just left out the life of Christ. We just left out the Sermon on the Mount. This is not a simple thing. Uh, I think this is everything, and the whole class is going to be an unfolding. And in fact, at some point, I think you may want to say, wait, I want to say, wait a minute, with somebody like, I, I like Maximus, I like what he's doing, but I think there, there is a limit, that there is a logocentrism that he's going to talk about, that I think is just part of what we're talking about when we talk about the rule of faith. So it's not, oh, do you, did you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior and accept him into your heart? Oh, they all did that, but they're destroying the church. In other words, it's the people who, who are followers of Jesus who are the most destructive to the church. And that's why Origen drops everything. You know, he's doing his exegetical work. He drops everything to write on first principles because it's kind of an emergency situation. The people destroying the church are, are not the, you know, the emperor or the Romans killing people. No, actually, that's helping them. The people destroying the church are those who are joining up and who do not have just the basic understanding of the implications of what this means, that God is incarnate in Christ. This is an explanation for everything, but they're living in the same world and imagining they can just tack this on, and it doesn't work. In other words, you, you've got to change it. You know, this is a little bit our problem today with evangelicals, or I, I, not just evangelicals, but with just everybody. People imagine Christianity is a thing they can tack on to the, an already existing worldview. It doesn't work, and I, th I think that's 
part of what we're talking about with this hypothesis. Part of the hypothesis in talking about God become man in the incarnation. You understand we've just blown every other worldview out of the water. And now we got to work that out and say, oh, what and how in the world can this hold together? How does this fit? And that's what origin is attempting. I think that's what Maximus is attempting, but that's what they're all saying. So yes, it is about the gospel about Christ, but it's also the full-blown implications of that are part of this, the basic principle. Can we say that, that the impulse towards creating a creed that would lay out these you know, belief systems would be kind of almost akin to a backsliding from you know the, the living word that is Jesus to the law that came before him. So it's almost that, that you have to resist that putting things into a creed because it can never fully contain what the, 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 the I guess, the world-changing message. And by trying to contain it, you actually do more harm uh, because you're going to kind of go back to this law interpretation that he overturned you're saying stuff that's music to my ears <laughs> Drew. but you understand the christian church churches of christ we're a non-credal church um mm. and so but i i i partly i don't buy that so a little bit yes i agree with what you're saying i think the impetus to write a creed the nicene creed comes under constantine why are they writing a creed under Constantine? Because he wants to hold the empire to get together and unite the empire. And so there's going to be things in the creed uh, that do that and things not in the creed that obviously there's not going to be anything about peace in the creed because that won't work. So I think, yes, I think that I my inclination would, would to be to say that's the case. On the other hand, I, I want to say, well, is there an inherent harm in all of these creeds? I, I think that they're writing creeds because the rule of faith failed. If it, if it had functioned, uh, if it had actually worked the way it was supposed to work. On the other hand, that may be to assign too much weight to creeds. Yeah, I think, I think there's a question here. How did the creed, what did the creeds actually do? And I think what tended to happen, they in fact did displace the rule of faith. I don't think that's what they were meant to do. I don't think they have to do that. Okay, makes sense. The the other thing that I just uh, one more thought I had was that it, you know it seems also somewhat analogous to Jesus's use of parables in the gospel, which is kind of a non-credal way of communicating the ethical message. You know, obviously there is the Sermon on the Mount where it's laid out very clearly but you know in the parables it's more about you know following or or not following a certain person's example rather than you know do this and don't do that yeah my last yeah. point yeah no that's a that's a good point boy drew i'm sure glad you're here <laughs> uh there is a narrative quality to all this there is a drama of faith to all this that's actually included in some of the, we'll see this in some of the uh, depictions of the rule of faith. Today, that's what everybody's talking about is narrative theology and, the, you know, the drama of doctrine. And well, yeah, I think that that's all there, that, that uh, in that what we've just done with the rule of faith is made it a living rule. 
And part of it being a living rule is it's tied to a narrative. It's tied to a story. And that's the way that we apprehend and understand. And not just that the story has ended, but this rule of, you know, a neat way of talking about that in terms of narrative is the narrative continues and we join the story. Yeah, I was going to say that thought jogged another part of the reading that uh, seemed important to me towards the end of Bear's first chapter. He kind of starts in the middle talking about the content of it and then the context the content being uh, the, the rule itself, Christ himself, how that being fleshed out. I mean, talk about taking it up into your yourself as an ethic, fleshed out, apprehended in different contexts. Uh, he really has a good paragraph in the, the last page of that first chapter where he says it like this. In light of the canon of truth itself, this is on page 48, other elements are also called canons such as the classical liturgical Oh, well, he's talking about canons, but then he says, and I guess one of maybe the last sentence, the word grows, as Acts puts it, Acts 6, 7, and that as more and more people believe on it and reflect on it, there are ever new, more detailed, and more comprehensive explanations elaborated in defense of the one and the same faith, the faith in what has been delivered from the beginning, the gospel according to the scriptures, the same word of God, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. What I take from that is the recognition of, I forget what you said, but you triggered it when you said something just now about about the faith being lived new and taken in a... a, a and the drama of doctrine that we that, live, continue the story. That's, that's right. And, you know, I, I think about that, that internalizing of, of the uh, of the law and the the particular gifts and callings of each of each individual person reflecting the image of God in a unique way in our own way that we are, are gifted to do and then the way that different cultures bring out different facets mm-hmm. of of what what Christ teaches us is just a powerful uh, I thought it was a good way to end in that chapter yeah, but yeah I appreciate it as a uh, a recognition of sort of the ongoing nature of it. The hypothesis is is applied, and uh, we're still working out the implications of the hypothesis. That's the job that we all have. That's the job. We're all theologians. Every Christian is is working out this theology, and so we have. It's true. We have to have the the hypothesis straight, but the working out of it is a kind of unending affair that it, that's our life. That's what we're about. I was going to say one thing, Matt, uh, you, you mentioned, and I said, well, that's where we're going. And that is the spirit, you know, very early on, Ignatius is going to use the word spirit and you don't know if he's talking about the Holy spirit or, you know, and I think he is that actually the way that you complete what a human being is, is through the life that's given to us in God, the Spirit. That's a, a, an early way, I think, of talking about theosis. And so where we're, where we're headed in the class is to talk about that. That won't come along until week five, I think. But I think it fits. It, it's part of the conversation that we began tonight. Hey, good start. Good to, good to meet everybody. We'll see you this time next week. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Okay.
Thank you, Paul. Good night. Good night. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.